Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are on Parshat Bishalach this morning. Uh, it is uh, Shabbat Shira. It is the Shabbat of the song because we are uh, studying the song at the sea. Uh, and so, but we're not studying that. <laughs> um, so we're going <laughs> to shut up, Rick. So we're going to go through it quickly. And um, and so we'll look at it a little bit, but we're really not going to sit with that part um, because I found something super cool that I want to talk with you about. All right. So let's go to the text. Um, our triennial division starts here at the sea, uh, actually right at the sea. God tells Moshe to stretch his arm out over the sea, and God drove back the sea with a strong wind. The waters were split, and the Israelites went into the sea on the dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on the right and the left. A boatload of ink has been spilled over. Is it yam? Is it sea or yabasha? Dry ground. How can it be both? That's for another year. The Egyptians come in pursuit of them, all of the horses, chariots, and horsemen. And in the morning, God looked down on the Egyptian army um, from a pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian army into panic. God locked the wheels of their chariots so that they moved forward with difficulty. Notice the word for difficulty, bichvedut, in heaviness, right? This is what happened to Pharaoh's heart, and it later happens to the chariots. They are kaved, they are heavy. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for God is fighting for them against Egypt. Then God said to Moses, hold out your arm over the sea that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. So Moses held his arm over the sea and at daybreak, the sea returned to its normal state. The Egyptians fled at its approach, but God hurled the Egyptians into the sea. The waters turned back and covered the chariots and the horsemen, Pharaoh's entire army that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the Israelites had marched through the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. Thus, God delivered Israel that day from the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the shore of the sea. So there's lots of confusion here. Are they in the sea? Are they out of the sea? Are they on the other side of the sea and the waters kill them there? Do they get killed in the water and then wash up? Like there's a lot of confusion. Like any scene where we have God intimately involved, it's often written very confusing to let us know that this is not normal events. This is not normal time. This is not normal reality. And so the writing is to confound, right, that sense of being clear about what's happening. So that's one claim. And when Israel saw the wondrous power with which Adonai had yielded against the Egyptians, the people feared Adonai. They had faith in yod and yod servant Moses. Yay! They had faith in God and in God's servant Moshe. Yay! Then we come to the Song of the Sea, sung uh, in morning davening every day. So I grew up singing this every single day. I know it by heart, um, which is crazy town, but I know the whole thing by heart, um, as many of you know, because you've seen me sing it out of the scroll. <laughs> like they go through singing the sea, uh, singing the song at the sea. I will sing to God for God has triumphed gloriously. Horse and driver, God has hurled into the sea. God is my strength and my might. God has become my deliverance. You all know this. We're going to maybe do this in meditation. Um, verse two, Ozi Vazim Right. God is my strength and might. God has become my deliverance. So Shefa Gold has a beautiful interpretation of this and, of course, wrote a beautiful chant to it. This is my God and I will enshrine God, the God of my ancestor. I will exalt God. God is a man of war. is God's name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army God cast into the sea. And the pick of his officers are drowned in the sea of reeds. The deeps covered them. They went down in the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O God, glorious in power. Your right hand shatters the foe. In your great triumph, you break your opponents. You send forth your fury. It consumes them like straw. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The flood stood straight like a wall. The deeps froze in the heart of the sea. The foe said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will bear my sword. My hand shall subdue them. You made your wind blow. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the majestic waters. Michamocha, here's where it comes from, people. 
here's where Micha Mocha comes from. Uh, every single time we pray together, we mention this moment at the sea. Who is like you, O God, among the celestials? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, working wonders? You put your right hand, you put out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. In your love, you led the people you redeemed. In your strength, you guide them to your holy abode. The peoples here, they tremble. Agony grips the dwellers in Philistia. Now are the clans of Edom dismayed, the tribes of Moab. Trembling grips them. All the dwellers in Canaan are aghast. We go on and on through the song of the sea till we get to verse 21. Then Miriam, the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all of the women went out after her and dance with timbrels. So you know this from the late blessed Devi Friedman uh, of blessed memory. Um, and Miriam, the prophetess, took her timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her, right, just as she had planned. All right, so this uh, Moshe's and Aaron's sister clearly are leading, she's leading some kind of um, ritual celebration after this uh, victory. Miriam chanted for them, sing to God, for God has triumphed gloriously. Horse and driver, God has hurled into the sea. Then Moses caused Israel to set out from the Sea of Reeds. They went on into the wilderness of Shur. They traveled three days in the wilderness and found no water. Okay, so we are three days out from the miracle at the sea, the final plague, and then the sea, they're terrified because they see Pharaoh and his army coming and they are delivered gloriously. They have this huge hymn that they sing, right? Miriam and the women um, celebrate and dance. Three days they have traveled from that moment. They came to Marah, but they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. That is why they named it Marah. <laughs> Mar means bitter in Hebrew, for those of you who don't know. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So he cried out to Yudhei and Yudhei showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There God made for them a fixed rule, and there God put them to the test. So the word is nasa. This is the same word used of Avraham when God nisad Avraham and asked him to sacrifice his only son. All right, so let's let's pay attention to that word. So God is nasaying the people, testing the people. God said, if you will heed Adonai, your God, diligently doing what is upright in God's sight, giving ear to God's commandments and keeping all of God's laws, then I will not bring upon you any of the diseases that I brought upon the Egyptians. For I, Yudhevafe, Rofecha, am your healer. And they came to Elim where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there beside the water. So God brings them to an o oasis, and they hang out in the oasis. Then they set out from Elim. The whole Israelite community came to the wilderness of Tzin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day on the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So we're in the middle of the second month. We're six weeks out from the scene at the sea. And the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the hand of God in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the flesh pots, when we ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to starve this whole congregation to death. Um, all right. So um, Sir Habasar. So we sat by the seer, the pot Habasar of meat of flesh, right? Because that's one of the most expensive things you can eat is meat in the ancient world. Um, and so they're talking, they're remembering with, right, relish. And um, what is it called when you remember using drugs? Ecstatic recall. They're doing ecstatic recall um, of how great they had it in Egypt. If only we had died there, they say to Moshe. So then God turns to Moshe and says, I will rain down bread for you from the sky and the people shall go out and gather each day that day's portion that I may thus test them. So here we have another another incident, Anasenu, that I will nasa them. I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions or not. So look what's going on here, right? Which until I read this piece, I hadn't really paid much attention before to this language of God testing the people, right? This is a slave people that, that they've brought out into the middle of nowhere. And what is this business of testing them? Like, what? why? So 
So it's already a weird dynamic that's set up. They're complaining. They're scared. They're thirsty. They're longing for the flesh pots of Egypt. So they are rewriting history a little here um, and complaining. Right. So we had a lot going on in terms of dynamics here. Um, but on the sixth day, when they apportion what they have brought in, it shall be doubled the amount they gather each day. So each day they're to gather mana. On the sixth day, it will be doubled because they're not to gather it on Shabbat. So Moshe and Aaron said to all the Israelites, by evening, you shall know it was yod heh who brought you out from the land of Egypt. Did they forget that? It's been six weeks. Did they forget that it was yod heh who brought them out of the land of Egypt? And in the morning, you shall behold kavod Adonai. You will hold, you will hold the, the concentrated essence of yod heh because God has heard your grumblings against God. For who are you that you should grumble against us? Since it is yod heh Moses continued, who will give you flesh to eat in the evening and bread in the morning in the full, because yod heh has heard the grumblings you utter against God. What is our part? Your grumbling is not against us, but against God. All right, so now Moshe is getting into the act. What are you, what are you complaining to us for? It's God who's going to feed you. God who's going to take care of this. What are you mad at us for? What did we do? So now everybody's unhappy. God's unhappy. The people are unhappy. Moshe's unhappy. And it, the, uh, the author of the article that I'm going to share with you said, you know, and Moshe's a bit of a complainer himself, right? Like, so Moshe's going to, co- Moshe's complaining to the people about them complaining. And then Moshe's going to complain to God about the people, right? So everybody's miserable. Everybody's complaining. And I'll go ahead and give you um, a preview a hint is that the 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 article we're going to read is called Suckling in the Wilderness. Um, and the author talks about this as the process of weaning. So think for a moment, if you will, of an infant and nursing, nursing moms, dads who are in on that rotation. Nobody's sleeping. The kid is hungry all the time and angry when the kid doesn't get to have the bottle in the mouth or the breast in the mouth. Um, and, but, but individuation, right, includes weaning. So craving, you know, that satisfaction um, and satiety and then pushing against it and everybody, everybody is miserable. Okay. <clears throat> Moshe says, and then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole Israelite community, advance toward Adonai for God has heard your grumbling. You're complaining. And as Aaron spoke to the whole Israelite community, they turned toward the wilderness and there in a cloud appeared um, the kavod Adonai, the presence of God. Then God spoke to Moshe saying, I've heard the complaining of the Israelites. Speak to them and say, by evening you shall eat flesh and in the morning you shall have your fill of bread and you shall know that I am Yehovah, your God. So we have a nursing God here. In the evening, quail appeared and covered the camp. In the morning, there was a fall of dew about the camp. When the, when the fall of dew lifted there over the surface of the wilderness lay a fine and flaky substance as fine as frost on the ground. When the Israelites saw it, they said to one another, manhu, a play on words in Hebrew, because what is it called? Mana, manhu, what is it? So the name of this thing is, what is it? <laughs> right. So essentially the Huja what's it, right? That's what it gets named. The, the, what is it? Well, it's called the Huja what's it? Like, that's what it is now. That's what mana actually the author is suggesting. That's what mana means. The Huja what's it um, for, they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, that is the bread, which Adonai has given you to eat. What, what, what was it described as? Oh, right. Fine and flaky. We're going to get told it's white and creamy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is what Adonai commanded. Gather as much of it as each of you requires to eat. And Omer a person for as many of you as there are. Each of you shall fetch for those in their tent. The Israelites did so, some gathering much, some gathering little. But when they measured it by the Omer, the one who had gathered much had no excess. And the one who had gathered little had no deficiency. They had gathered as much as they needed to eat. God has enough to provide. And Moshe said to them, Leave no, let no one leave any of it over till morning. But shockingly, 
They didn't listen to Moshe. And some of them left it till morning and it became infested with maggots and stank. And Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning. So Moshe's mad now again, like they've disobeyed again. So they gathered it every morning, each as much as they needed to eat. For when the sun grew hot, it would melt. On the sixth day, they gathered double the amount, right? Then they came to Moshe. This is what God meant. Tomorrow's a day of rest, a holy Sabbath for Adonai. Bake what you would bake, boil what you would boil, and all that is left, put aside to keep till morning. It will keep tonight because you don't gather on Shabbos, so it won't rot. So they put it aside. It did not turn foul. There was no maggots in it. Eat because it's Shabbos. You'll gather on the sixth day. On the seventh day, you'll have enough. And God says to Moshe, now God's going to complain to Moshe. God complains to Moshe, how long will y'all refuse to obey my commandments and my teachings? What did Moses do? How is Moses implicated in this? Moses didn't do anything. Mark that Adonai has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, God gives you two days food on the sixth day. So we get reminded again about Shabbos. The house of Israel named it manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and it tasted like wafers in honey. Yeah, the opposite of mara, the opposite of bitter, but also right a very close description to mother's milk. Moses said, this is what God commanded. Oh, here we go again with the, with the Omer, that Moshe should keep an Omer of it forever um, as a reminder of this time in Egypt so that Moshe is to put it um, and Aaron puts it before the pact um, to be kept forever as a sign. And the Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to a settled land. They ate manna. So they are nursed, essentially, until they come to the land of Canaan. Okay. Chapter 17, they encamped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people. So they complained to Moses, give us water. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you try? Why do you test God? So now Moses is accusing the people of testing God. God is testing the people. Everybody's testy. But the people thirsted for water and they grumbled. Why did you bring us from Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock? with thirst. So now the people are accusing Moshe of murder, mass murder, intentionally. You brought us out here intentionally to kill us and our children with thirst in the desert. So then Moses turns to God and says, what shall I do with these people? Before long, they will stone me. So God says to Moshe, pass before the people Take the elders and the rod with which you struck the Nile, right? And go out there. And then we know what happens. We all know the story um, that he, right? He goes out and he, um, he hits the rock and he brings forth water for the people. So we have this, this incredible dynamic setup going on, this triangulation going on with everybody is upset. Everybody's cranky. Everybody's complaining. Um, nobody's happy. Uh, and so we're going to look at this um, new take. I have, I was like, and it's a 20 year old book that I just happened upon in another Torah study research um, situation. And uh, you, you will have the title page, um, but essentially it's a, called a biography of ancient Israel. And this author is, is a literature teacher, professor. At, uh, I want to say in Jerusalem. Um, a literature professor, and she had this interesting approach to the to the story of the ancient Israelites and casts these texts as a biography of a character. That ancient Israel is a character. The way you would have character development in a novel, she's suggesting that's what we have in these stories of the formation of the nation is the development of a character called the Israelites. And this, she has birth. You can imagine, you can imagine, right? We've talked a little bit about this birth. You got to have blood. You got to have water. You got to have all that. Well, they pass through the lintels of the door, right? With blood all over it. They go through the water at the beginning of this week, the birthing waters, right? So you've got birth. She has a beautiful chapter on that. And this chapter is called Suckling in the Wilderness, talking about, um, the the time when an infant is suckling and is being weaned. 
Um, that's part of natural growth. It's part of what has to happen for the mother not to kill it is my theory. Uh, but right. That at some point weaning has to happen for an infant, a toddler, like to be able to strike out on its own. Um, that was a much longer process in the ancient world. As we know, um, sometimes three, four, it was also used as birth control. So if you're nursing for four years, you have less of a chance of conceiving. So if you, you know, you spaced your children by nursing them for three or four years. Um, and also that was the time at which a child could pretty much, um, take care of itself, meaning it does, it, it could at four, a kid could pretty much know where to stay out of the way of trouble. You know what I mean? Like stay, stay with these kids until something happens. Then you go running for an adult. Um, so four was a good age to say, okay, I'm not going to have to have you on my hip all the time. All right. So given all of that, it, it really makes an interesting interpretation of these texts, of these stories. We have so many of them in a row. So many of these stories about tension between God, the parent, and the, the um, literally, and in, in, if you want to translate it that way, the children of Israel, right? So God, the parent, the people of Israel, and Moshe, who's going to use language about nursing directly. Moshe uses that language when challenging God and says, if you can't feed them, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to suckle them? Right. So Moshe uses this analogy directly, this metaphor directly um, in talking about his role vis-a-vis the people and God's role vis-a-vis the people. But let's look at let's look at why I found this interesting. All right. So right here in the middle of this sentence, right, or this column, the people complain and the people murmured against Moshe. What shall we drink? The least Moshe could do after leading them to such a wasteland, their blunt and angry question seems to suggest, is to provide them with the most elementary substance of all, water, right? Then after that, down here, the assembly murmurs about hunger and accuses Moses of starving them to death, leading them astray to perish in the wilderness, far from the fullness of the savory flesh pots of Egypt, And the last sentence there, such stories bear witness to the conditions of desert life, to the scarcity of water and food in an an arid and uninhabitable zones. But their literal significance does not preclude their figurative implications. The voyage into the heart of the desert is a double voyage, both out there in a marked geographic space and within. So she's talking about the two kinds of journeys that are happening here, the journey out literally into all these different places and the journey in. Thirst and hunger, I would suggest, stand for a sharp and primary sense of loss. This is also why I loved this article because you know how impatient I get with these people, right? And it's like, this really did change the same way I had a little bit more Rahmanis for Joseph this year. I have a little bit more, more Rahmanis for the people reading this piece. To be torn away from Egypt, a feminine noun, seems to be analogous to the painful process of weaning experienced by the infant at the disappearance of the overflowing breast of a nurturing mother. The famous flesh pots of Egypt, Sir Habasar, represent not merely an Egyptian delicatessen, but also the longed-for flesh of an absent mother. Left high and dry in the wilderness without the mother's body, without her sweet milk, the very antithesis of bitter water, the children of Israel fear total annihilation. Deserted at birth, they now feel deserted once again in an unbearable exile. So think about that for a second. What if leaving Egypt for them is exile? Like we, right? We always talk about the other side of exile, leaving the land of Canaan, but Really, for this people, they've been there 400, over 400 years. Their associations are with Egypt. And leaving that, they're in the middle of friggin' nowhere. They didn't leave New York to go to Miami, right? These people have been ripped out of whatever they have known and are thrown out into the middle of nowhere. So this, this idea of being kind of deserted in an unbearable exile the wandering Israelites cry much as the exiled who, exiles who sat by the rivers of Babylon cried on remembering Zion. Only their notion of motherland does not coincide with the official one. 
Egypt is the land they mourn over, the land of their dreams, not Zion. So here she talks about another scene that we just read. Moses, who is quite a complainer himself, turns to God and asks, and this is going to happen in the book of Numbers, which I just mentioned to you, have I conceived this people? Have I begotten them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nursing father bears the suckling child unto the land which you swore to their ancestors? The wandering in the wilderness is likened to a vulnerable suckling, in Hebrew, a yonaik, who needs to be nursed and carried in the bosom in order to survive. Down here, without a nursing mother or wet nurse, an infant had little to no chance of survival. Thus, Egyptian papyri from early New Kingdom include a spell for the mother's milk meant to assure its flow and quality. Moses's rhetorical questions imply that God, who begot the nation and thus is responsible for its well-being, has not been very successful in fulfilling the child's needs. And if God has not managed to provide the children of Israel with the much-needed maternal nurturing, why should Moses be capable of assuming the role of the nation's nurse, their omen? For a female, it's omenets, right? So conceiving the people is not the end of the story. Just you don't conceive and then birth it and then walk away. That's a crappy mother. That's a crappy parent, right? Moshe is saying you birth this people and you're just going to walk away. Like they're hungry. It's your job to feed them. That's what you do with the baby. Get with it. (laughs) Like I, I didn't have this baby. I can't nurse them. The intense gratification at the mother's breast reinforces an idealization that experience tends to frustrate. The child senses the mother's nurturance as insufficient at times and resents her control over it. The breast releases milk in limited quantities and then disappears. Rage at the evasive breast intermingles with fear and anxiety. When the breast is wanted and is not to be found, the infant feels that it is lost forever along with the mother. Now, maybe I did. I don't know if you can. Can you hear they're complaining a little differently? Right? Like the only time they feel safe, they're in the middle of nowhere. They have no reference points that make them at all comfortable. Nothing's familiar. And God's gone. Right, God, who was so there and so at the sea and ish milchama, and you know, ready to fight and ready to protect them, they feel that it's gone. That that they are hungry, they're thirsty, they're scared. So they're being thirsty like an infant. If an infant is thirsty, it's because the breast is not there, which means mom is not there. So it's not just hungry. That's bad enough, but you're not safe when you're hungry as an infant, because it means mom's not there or dad. Now, you know, we have obviously, you know, dads feeding babies at all hours of the day and night as well. Right. But I love this line, the intense gratification, right. From the parent, from the nurturing parent reinforces an idealization of the parent that experience tends to frustrate. In other words, there's no other way for this story to unfold if we're talking about the development of a character. There's no other way. Children idealize their parents and experience with their parents who are human beings, which we can talk about what does that mean about God then, George Walcon, um, like the experience with that parent frustrates that idealized, right, n- notion because you don't have the breast all the time. Even with the best mother, right? You, mom has to like do stuff. Mom has to be a person. And so you don't have the breast all the time. And so that idealized parent relationship gets frustrated the minute you put the child into reality. And so there, there couldn't be anything other than all this frustration if you're talking about God as parent, this new child who's, and, and the relationship between them trying to figure that out in this new this new iteration. Okay. Okay. Ready? This blew me away, people. This blew me away. Ready? Oh my God. We're going to talk more about when we get there. The image of Egypt 
the bountiful motherland cannot so easily be forgotten and replaced. Her loss parches the people's throats and gives rise to intense and painful painful longings for the life-sustaining maternal gift that was, as it were, stolen from them, gone forever. While the children of Israel are continuously disappointed by God's lack of nurturing, God scolds the grumbling nation for its lack of faith and its insatiability. Anger, oh wait, this is not it yet, but we'll get there. Anger goes both ways and testing or trying too. God tests Israel's capacity to keep his commandments through water and food. And the nation in turn tests God's vigilance and love. Indeed, the same root nasa is used in both cases. Um, and then she she's going to take a closer look at the you know at the construction of national thirst and hunger um, to understand the shaping of the biography of ancient Israel. But hang on to that whole idea of um, Egypt being the mother and their longing for the life sustaining maternal gift of Egypt. Hang on to that because she's going to blow us away. But I love this line too. God's body, meaning the nur- the nursing father, God's body is as stiff as the nation's neck, <laughs> right? So God's breasts are rock. They're hungry. They're thirsty. <laughs> so it turns out God's body is as stiff as the nation's neck. You have to love that. All right. So let's go to page 50 down here. The mana is more liquid than dry food, alleviating both thirst and hunger. The taste of it is exquisite, like wafers made with honey or rich cream, which we get in numbers. And its color, white as coriander seed. What is but heavenly sweet, creamy milk that, what is it but heavenly sweet, creamy milk that allows the entire congregation to nurse at once? How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws, asks God, enraged by the excruciatingly slow nature of pedagogical undertakings. The voyage is as as long on the parental side, right? So any of y'all who've ever had any um, experience with like pedagogy and teaching a child anything, right? It can take for friggin' ever because usually we're in some ways, ready for the next stage, right? Because we want a little freedom. Um, And even like Pam taking in all of these rescues, right? They're damaged, they're frightened, right? And so it's over and over and over and over. You have to do the same thing to try to communicate, right? Successfully what you're trying to teach. Okay, Um, wait, wait, wait. Okay, so we're gonna go to 57. Don't worry about what she's referencing. You can read the whole article. It's so fun. The Bible fashions a different myth. The myth of a nursing father who brings forth water out of rocks and drops mana and quail from the sky. The complex interweaving of myth and history had much to offer, but could not preclude longings for a cultural past in which suckling was provided by a more tender mother unambiguously female. The separation from the well-established religion of Egypt was not a simple task, nor was there national accord as to the preferable mode of individuation, right? No one asked the people, do y'all want to leave Egypt? Do y'all want to give up the mother image? Do y'all want to give up the religion of Egypt? Nobody asked them. And it wasn't even like, okay, you can have a Hanukkah bush. Nothing. Right. They didn't even get a crossover right version for a while. Just complete cutoff from what they knew of as comfort right in Egypt. Um, So then she references how Roman and Greek culture, right, like, you know, depended on the cultures that went and the religions that went before them, uh, meaning, you know, these precursors. Despite the harshness of a mono of monotheistic censorship, the people opposed the mosaic demand to eradicate the heritage of Egypt and attempt to maintain a few drops of milk from their lost cultural past. This gives me so much more Rahmanis for them. Of course, of course they want that, right? A few drops. Come on. 
when the children of actually when the children of Israel actually give more concrete expression to their repressed desires, you ready? They forge a golden calf. Not a nursing goddess, but where there is a calf, there must have been a cow. People, people, what did they build when they freaked out that God and Moses were gone? The breast was gone and the babysitter was gone. What did they do? They built a calf. The calf, I would conjecture, is a distorted and displaced image of Isis. It is a suckling calf that speaks of the absence of a suckling cow. Isis, one should bear in mind, was represented at times in the shape of a cow or in human form wearing a cow horn crown. Some scholars assume that the golden calf stands for Apis, the sacred bull of Egyptian religion. But given the fact that what we have here is a calf, not a bull, it is more plausible, she says, to see Isis as the primary reference. They built a golden image of themselves left by everybody. (laughs) Like God is gone. They are a nation who's a suckling calf and there's nobody there to nurse them. That Moses grinds the golden calf and makes the congregation drink it. It's dust with water reinforces the notion that suckling and weaning are at stake, right? You want to eat Egypt? No problem. Here it is. And he grinds it up, remember? He grinds up the calf and puts it in water and makes them drink it. You have to be weaned from Egypt. So I'm going to put something disgusting in mother's milk. Now see if you want it so bad. Moses tries to wean the nation from its yearnings for idolatrous water by drawing a distinction between pure sources and muddy waters or in Jeremiah's terms, between seeking the fount of living water and going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile. That is the work of Moshe, is a very unpopular job of weaning the people. But it's the first time I've ever really, really See, remember, we've talked a lot over the years about the people being scared and the people are slaves and they've been, they've had no power and they've been oppressed and they've been told what to do and they've never had to take responsibility. We've had a lot of compassion for this people that's suffering some years more than others. Um, but like never before have I really thought about what does it mean to not ask them about leaving America? What, 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 is it, what does it mean to say you don't get to identify with any of those symbols anymore? You don't get to practice any of the religion that, that was all around you for 400 years? You don't get to eat any of the food that was familiar? I'm now going to give you this, whatchamacallit, that's what you eat every day? And then you get somewhere and you can't even drink the water? like, And we can't have anything from Egypt? Right? And so... God and Moshe are very impatient about they need to be weaned. And they're like, why? Go explain to a toddler. When I was trying to explain to Ellie that she really shouldn't have a bottle in her mouth all the time anymore. She looked at me like I had three heads. She was like, why? What is wrong with you? I mean, she was like, Bubby remembers. She was like three and four years old with a bottle hanging out of her mouth. It's just like, I was like, Ellie, you're a big girl. You need to put that down. And she was just like, what is wrong with you? Do you not know how amazing this is? Why would I put it down? All right. So they don't want to be weaned. And, and Moshe and God are like, give me the friggin' bottle. Why are you always picking that thing up? You're not a baby anymore. Really? All right. So meaning you should be over that desire. You should be over that craving. You should be over the need for that pleasure. Why? (laughs) Right? Why? It makes no sense to the one who gets pleasure from putting their thumb in their mouth. Why should they stop? And for the parent, it's like, oh my God, get your thumb out of your mouth. We've talked about this, right? So the push on the one side for wanting 
Israel to grow into its own nationhood, its own symbols, its new monotheistic relationship with the parent. I want to be able to go shopping with you and get our nails done. But I can't do that if you don't get your nails out of your mouth. <laughs> right. So, right. God wants a new kind of relationship with a people. So hurry up and get there. And Moshe just wants everybody to stop fighting. So if you can just please put the bottle down and take one bite of cereal, and if you can just lower your voice a little and just let her have it before she goes to bed, right? So Moshe's just trying to figure out how this relationship cannot fall apart and is exhausted, right? Um, And the people are like, no one asked us whether we want to be weaned from, from paganism and polytheism and ISIS. No, thank you. No. And so now you've set up, right, the perfect, horrible paradigm of of a parent weaning a child, which I just found a remarkable set of of images and insights into this narrative that that too often, I think, we we miss so many of the nuances um, in the text that really allow us to feel for everybody involved, right? And the people writing this were people who had babies, and weaned them. And these were people who were infants who got weaned, right? Don't we love being carried around and taken care of all the time? Like who would ever choose to have that stop? And so these are, these stories are written by people who also felt conflicted about what does it mean to individuate? What does it mean to become one's own person and then to take responsibility and then to, then to be the parent, right? That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. Um, but remember, the other thing she points to is that they're, they're told you're going to have something better than Egypt. You're going to have the promised land. You're going to have Canaan. You're going to have Eretz Canaan. You're going to have what's going to be the land of Israel flowing with what? Milk and honey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? So you're going to have it better than Egypt. But what happens? Now I, it made me understand that story completely differently what happens when they send out the spies remember they get their first glimpse of what's supposed to be better than the suckling isis they get scared they get terrified they see walled cities with huge giants ain't no suckling happening there (laughs) right they do not see what they've been promised now two of them do Right. And bring back a huge cluster of grapes. And look, it's exactly what we were promised. We don't need to suckle anymore. We have teeth and we we can eat these amazing things. Um, But most of them were like, we have been ripped off. We've been sold a bill of goods. We the only reason we were torn away from Egypt was because we were told we were going to have something better than their flesh pots. We're going to be in those pots. Did you see the size of those people? It's us who's going to be dinner. Right. So it helps me understand that story a lot differently as well to really stay in touch with the pain of this people saying, you've taken everything familiar from us, everything that's comforting, everything that's made the world have sense and meaning. And you give us what instead? Mana? Really? (laughs) Right. So. um, All right. So your thoughts, your comments. I think that this also could be related on a more adult level to addiction, that they were addicted to slavery. And how many people do we know or have we experienced ourselves with something very destructive that nevertheless is very seductive? And right. that as as one level children, but another level adults, they were addicted to the ease of that. I saw that in Russia after the end of the Soviet Union. A lot of people loved it. It was great. They didn't have to worry. They were fed. They were clothed, you know, and so they were slaves. Who cared? Right. Um, yeah. Like the ways that, that, that we, if we step outside of being ready to judge as, you know, with, you know, holding as pejorative addiction, to sla- you know, an attachment to slavery. Why? Why do we judge that? 
right? Was because we're from Protestant America, where it's all about the Protestant work ethic and production. Okay, if we step out of our ethnocentricity for a minute and go to Bert's point, why would you want to have to run around like a crazy person the way we do in this country working and have that be most of your life is craziness around how hard we work and how little time we have for recreation, how little time we have for family, how little time we have for friendship, how little time we have for just do pursuing the things of pleasure, like reading and playing and being in a garden and whatever we, we prize making ourselves maniacs. Right. And right. So to Bert's point, there's lots of stuff that is a whole lot more comfortable that we look down on as addiction. Well, and, and I'm, I'm careful always about the language of addiction because it's, you know, it's so in our Western culture a, akin to disease. So it's, it's a little trickier, um, but certainly the things we desire and crave, right? Like who wants to give them up if you don't have to? And, and, and why would we, if we didn't have to David? Um, Amy, following Bert's point, um, wouldn't this be more akin, and I'd like our psychologist to talk about this, to some version of Stockholm Syndrome, a la Patty Hearst, I mean, describing the Jews longing for what clearly was not a hospitable environment for them. So admiring the culture of the oppressor. Right, um, right, right. You know, Again, Stockholm syndrome, it's a, it's a little, it's a little harsh. I mean, I'm not going to say it's not related, but um, it's, I don't know if you think about any minority people and any oppressed people, aren't their ideals on some level, the ideals of the culture they live in, they just want to share them. They want access to them too. It's not that they say, Ugh, I don't want a nice car. I don't want a lovely home. They don't say that. That's not Stockholm syndrome for black slaves in America to have looked at what the the owners had and say, I don't want that. Of course they want that. They, they want those, they want comfort. They want shelter, right? They want a nice house. They want a family. They, they want those things. It's not that the culture is antithetical to the values that they could have. It's that they don't have access to that. Jews coming here from Europe, they looked at the American dream and they achieved. I was just listening to, to a podcast about, right, that, that the Jews who came here who did not have access to those things in Europe, but wanted those things, came here and achieved it. And our kids are, you know, the, the grandkids of those people are intellectuals and leaders doing very well in this country. Is it wrong to want what the host country has? I, I, I don't know. I think it's human. I think it's normal to, to want what we see around us that's desirable. Judith? Another psychological phenomenon, I think, is wanting to stay with the devil you have rather than the one you don't know. So yeah. you'll continue to live in misery rather than take a chance that what you're going to get is worse. Yeah. What we're familiar with, what we know how to do. Right. right? right. There are people who claim we pick relationships based on right? The, the, the unhealthy family patterns that we grew up with because it's familiar to us. That's right. It's what we know. And the other question is, when did people finally realize that nursing does not act as contraception? <laughs> right. My children are 14 months apart yeah. and I was nursing while I was pregnant with me. Irish twins. <laughs> yes, right. Mark? First of all, I think that the, just the, the notion of the Stockholm syndrome, I think, is very apposite. This is uh, this is precisely the kind of thing that's involved in the Stockholm syndrome. This is uh, this all of this is really uh, based very directly in the developmental psychology of Melanie Klein and the yeah uh, she quotes Klein. She does quote uh, Klein. Yeah, and it's it's just it's right out of Melanie Klein. Um, and, uh, um, you know, there, there is an awful lot to say about it. Uh, it's a very complex psychology. And uh, she really uh, uh, extracts some very pertinent things, I think. But this is the same kind of situation that I think we're in now with the pandemic. The, uh, the stress that leads to the aggression, 
that um, uh, leads to that is involved in a movement from the depressive position to the paranoid schizoid position, with all of the uh, um, all of the that's implied in that um, the development of thing of uh, a worldview where things are all good or all bad, um, etc. It's um, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to just sort of go off on a dithyram about Melanie Klein, but this is, uh, I think this is very opposite. It's, uh, and uh, it's the, the dynamics are identical to the Stockholm syndrome. So uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting observation about our time in, in that sense of regression, right? Mm-hmm. That really is a great way to describe so much of the thinking that you look at people and go, are you serious right now? Right. And it's like, well, yeah, because because there's been some collective regression. Right. To right. To to accept conspiracy theories and everyone's out to get me. And, you know, the government's, you know, the the vaccine is actually a way for them to put a chip in me and track me like it's like it on the one hand, it's crazy. On the other hand, it's like, well, yeah, we're a little crazy. There's a secondary process thinking, a loss of. uh, a capacity for object relations and a uh, regression to a very heavy reliance on splitting and projective identification where things are all good or all bad. And rationality simply is not uh, uh, involved. This is not a rational process. It's an emotional process. Right. Nice. Thank you, Mark. Margo? No, I I had something to say before and I'll probably still say just uh, just thinking that it was about 15 or 20 years ago when I joined Torah study, and it was this Parsha that was uh, the Parsha of that particular day. And um, there's a big difference in how this was uh, um, taught years ago and are thinking now, and it's it's just uh, an eye opener for me in terms of how to look at uh, Torah from so many different perspectives. Great, so. great. I mean, that's a long history, Margot, of looking at this parsha, right? That's right. it's a lot of times of looking at this parsha <laughs> and hearing it explicated in lots of different ways, and so that you know that's that's amazing that mm-hmm. you hung with it. <laughs> Hopefully this is not the paranoid schizophrenic version that you're hearing today. I don't think so. <laughs> All right. Well, um, so um, when we get to the uh, to the incident with the cab, I don't know. I'm just going to be thinking about it a little differently uh, this year. Um, and I have a little more Rahmonis for Moshe. Um, you know, after kind of looking at how how God is involved in testing constantly in this also, right? It's just kind of... It's just incredible family dynamics going on that makes me feel, makes me, it gives me rachmanis for everybody involved. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.